Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Through much of U.S. history, antitrust movements joined by farmers, laborers, abolitionists, and small business people were a force to be reckoned with in American politics. Then, in the late 1970s, anti-monopoly fervor subsided and remained dormant for the next 40 years. The tides have now begun to change with the appointment of leading antitrust experts in the Biden administration and a growing number of labor and grassroots organizers once again taking aim at monopoly power. This history and the present urgency of antitrust organizing is the subject of episode 22 of Reinventing Solidarity. It features New Labor Forum books and arts editor Samir Santi in conversation with Zephyr Teachout, Associate Professor of Law at Fordham Law School and author of Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. They discuss Teachout's assertion in the book that monopoly is tyranny and that the busting of contemporary monopolies from Tyson to Facebook to Citibank must be the order of the day. I'm, I'm, this is a really, really exciting discussion. Thrilled to have Zephyr Teachout here with us to talk about her wonderful book on monopoly and antitrust politics, Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. Since 2009, Zephyr has been an associate professor at Fordham Law School, where she's published widely in law reviews and, and in popular venues on the issue of corporate power and democracy. Her first book, Corruption in America, from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United, was published in 2014 by Harvard University Press, and it, it provides a really rigorous examination of the long legal history of the idea of corruption in the United States. And, and it shows how the courts have narrowed that definition over the past generation or so to the point where corporations are now spending unlimited amounts of money on lobbyists and political contributions. And that's somehow not considered to be a sign of corruption. We'll talk a bit about that today. In the, in the book we're discussing today, Professor Teachout presents you know, all of this extensive legal and economic research that she's done over decades in an accessible and really delightfully readable account of the scope and character of corporate power in our world today. It tackles a question of central importance, obviously, to the struggle of social and economic justice. And there, there really couldn't be a more timely moment to be discussing it. So I'm super excited for this. Professor Teachout, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the, the conversation. You know, in this book, 
You make two main arguments. Uh, the first emphasizes, as you put it, the, the tyranny. And I, I like, I want to, we'll come back to this term, but the tyranny of overwhelming corporate power, really the consequences of democracy or consequences on democracy in a society in which, you know, a few corporations control so much. And I want to circle back to this, but I want to start with your second argument, which is that we need a mass antitrust movement of our time. Everyone can name Amazon, Google, Walmart, Verizon, probably a few dozen or a few Wall Street banks and many other, a few dozen other corporations. And we all know they're very powerful, but but you maintain that progressives don't pay enough attention to how they've become so powerful. Mega mergers, I mean, Facebook buys Instagram and WhatsApp and, and it kind of almost goes unnoticed. Efforts to crush smaller competitors and so on. But for about you know a century prior to the 1980s, the idea of monopoly, however broadly defined, loomed very large in U.S. political culture. So can you talk a bit about this longer history of anti-monopolism and, and explain what happened and why, why we don't have that presence today? Yeah, thank you. And actually, the two, two points are very connected because I, I got into anti-monopoly work not only because I cared profoundly about what is happening to worker safety and worker dignity, what is happening to our communities, the radical inequalities that we see both geographical <laughs> and within geographical regions. But I, but I kind of backed into it through democracy work and have both been writing and acting quite actively on voting rights, on money politics, and it became clear to me that there's this sort of big democracy work that this is changing, but that the left had not been engaged in for some time. And that it's really important to understand anti-monopoly work as democracy work. And you know, the, the Shakespeare in 30 seconds version of this is that a core part of the American revolution was an anti-monopoly push. Like think about the actual Tea Party, the actual Tea Party as a push against government by the East India monopoly. And that there was even, you know, if you look at Wood and other historians of the era, they talk about the revolution as being against the spirit of monopoly. In that context, these are governmental grants of private power authority over whole geographical regions. That sort of anti-monopoly understanding of private capital as potentially playing a tyrannical governing role maintains throughout most of our history. And a really key moment is the Reconstruction, where you see a real tying by abolitionists of the illegitimacy of power based on race and illegitimacy of corporate power. And I'll just use one example. Uh, Charles Sumner, famously beaten on the halls of the Senate as an abolitionist, was also a determined anti-monopolist and said at one point, and this is nothing against New Jersey, very much in the news today, but <laughs> that uh, taking the train through New Jersey was like, you know, basically riding through the kingdom of the railroads who would say to all who passed this way, I am the, I am your prince, <laughs> you know, sort of what is going on when railroads, what he's talking about is the railroads power over farmers and anybody who was trying to get their goods to market, that, that governing power. And then you see Du Bois, who's one of our country's greatest anti-monopolists, writing and working through the role of anti-monopoly and local, local creditors 
in maintaining the economic disenfranchisement as well as the actual disenfranchisement of Black Americans. You see the anti-monopoly movement in the early, and I'll hurry up, (laughs) sorry, the anti-monopoly movement in the early 20th century take different forms and actually turn into key pieces of legislation. Very relevant to today is the the moment in 1912 when the president signs the Clayton Act, one of the key pieces of anti-monopoly legislation, and sends the pen that he uses to sign the Clayton Act to the head of the AFL-CIO who calls it a charter of liberty for workers because there was, again, a sort of lots of debates, you know, when we're, we're sort of patching over those debates, but a deep understanding that concentrated corporate power was bad for democracy and really bad for workers because it changed their negotiating power for wages, dignity, and benefits. And, and the, the real, the, the strongest modern anti-monopoly movement, movement is in the post-New Deal era, where you actually have a significant sustained anti-monopoly philosophy that involves both stopping mergers and supporting co-ops, rural electrification being just one of the many examples of this, sort of a vision the Green New Deal is like the modern vision, this is very similar, a vision of massive federal policy that is done in a decentralized way that works for co-ops and workers. So then what happens? Well, in the late 1970s, a, there's a massive intellectual revolution. Martin Luther said, if you want to change the world, use your pen. Well, a series of economists broadly associated with the Chicago School basically rewrote history and rewrote economic policy. And they did two or three really critical things. One is they said, oh no, all this history was foolish. The the, the real purpose of these antitrust laws, Clayton Act, Sherman Act, you don't need to know the details. The purpose of these laws was just consumer welfare. It's not about freedom. It's not about workers' power. It's not about local communities having thriving pharmacists. Not about any of that. It's just about how much toothpaste costs at the, at the grocery store. So one, consumer welfare. Two, they gave judges this kind of crazy job of deciding whether, instead of saying, you can't do this, this is a kind of contract you can't engage in, which is the history of antitrust laws. They said, oh, you should just judge, it's called the rule of reason, but you should make decisions about whether behavior is illegal or not based on its other ancillary benefits. And the third thing, and this is so important for this conversation, for the work that Samir does, is they basically said, economic policy is not the public's job. And especially in the area of antitrust, it's too complicated. It's, it's like, it's beyond your capacity. This is the job for the economists, the priests. And you have to basically understand if the priests say this is not okay, then it's not okay. But, but trust us, this is too complicated. Effectively, you are stupid. You should be scared. If you see concentrated power, it's actually efficient. Like, and, and the effect of these three parts of the revolution was really substantial. I mean, we've been in a merger wave for decades now, and almost every area of the economy is aggressively concentrated. 
you know, where you have a handful of actors really doing what anti-monopoly law is supposed to stop, which is dictating terms, not like, I mean, think about drug companies. They're not like in a trying to provide the best services. They are just saying, oh, we, we want to raise the prices today over here. We'll raise them. We are sort of dictators on top of this. So to, to wrap up this intro, we are at a new moment where there is growing anti-monopoly fervor that is actual, popular, on the ground. And it's one of those things where I think the public is ahead of the, the elected officials, where you see, like, if you talk to, you know, the, the spectrum strikers who are in one of the longest strikes in New York City history, right, downtown New York City, they get it that after the merger went through, they just didn't have negotiating power anymore. You know, the, like up, up until then, it's not like they love talking to, to charter. It's just that they at least got a seat at the table. And once there is one or two or three, you don't need just one, two or three employers, they aren't even listening anymore. So we are seeing this revival of worker-led anti-monopolism, small business-led anti-monopolism, it's going to be really hard, but it's pretty exciting to see. You actually, in, in answering that, it picked up on what my second question was going to be, which is this idea of, of I mean, the, the kind of academic definition of monopoly being a single seller that can raise prices. And so how do we make sense of, of corporate power in an era where Walmart and Amazon can charge next to nothing? But you've, you've answered that through sort of this intellectual revolution that takes place. And, and also, I just, you know, I think it's fascinating when you're talking about kind of like all of the different dimensions of, of anti-monopoly politics over the last century, the anti-racist component, the labor component, because, I mean, it speaks to, at the same time, you know, it's, it's worth noting that in the early to mid 20th century, some of the, some of the more yeah. vocal anti-monopolists were also like Southern Jim Crow Democrats. So you had this, you had this wing too. And, and then, you know, corporations are talking about the labor monopoly, blaming union, you know, considering unions as, as, uh, as a monopoly themselves. And that relates back to your point about the AFL and Gompers' celebration. So, I mean, it was, it had such currency across the political, sp- I mean, it was, it was, uh, I, I don't know, that, that's what, that's what I was thinking. No, I, I love it because it's like, we, I, so I gave the sort of like the clean heroic version. <laughs> the truth is part of the reason that we haven't had the strong anti-monopoly movement that we need and we now are, are getting is for exactly the reasons you're talking about that anti-monopoly laws were used against unions, were used against workers. So it's not like this sort of clean one way. And Wilson, who was endorsed by Du Bois for his anti-monopolism, of course, was one of the the sort of worst in-office segregationists and totally failed Du Bois on his promises. And so there is, I think there's, you know, part, when I was, when I was looking into like, why don't we on the left spend more time busting up big corporations? There's like a, there are some intellectual arguments about the way the society should be shaped, but there are some deep reasons for suspicion of the 20th century anti-monopoly leaders because of the ways in which they used anti-monopoly against labor. And I don't mean all, you know, this is not Brandeis, but it's certainly like Wilson you know, Wilson isn't my hero. (laughs) And so in as much as Wilson is the sort of strongest anti-monopolist, but also the strongest racist segregationist, 
it it's I actually think part of our collective job and part of the reason I go back to the reconstruction is that there's really great, you may not know their names, but there's really powerful anti-racist, anti-monopoly leaders in the 1870s. Right, right. No, yeah, that's great. And I get, I think this just underscores the extent to which the idea of monopoly had loomed so large. And it was one that everyone, where, kind of whatever side you were with, wherever you were coming from, had to reckon with and try to use. And that, that ultimately could lead it to have a kind of checkered history in many respects. But I guess, I mean, like what's notable now is that the idea of monopoly, maybe it's changing and that's what we're going to end up talking about. But for, as you, as you say, for the last couple of decades, hasn't loomed as large, but we've seen again, enormous concentrations of of economic power. And so, uh, you know, one of the, you, you, moving into the present, moving into right now, or the last, let's say decade or two, you, you, interestingly, I think, start with the example of the chicken industry. And and you describe what you call the chickenization of the American middle class. And there's a lot that I think is really important here. But one of the things that I found striking is how how you show the extent to which people in rural America, like like chicken farmers and and people in urban America, like Uber drivers, let's say, have had very similar experiences, even even if the sort of product that they're dealing with is very different. And they're not worlds apart, even if the political geography of our country might suggest that they are. So could you talk a little bit about what's happened in the chicken industry and you know how it relates to the experience of lots of workers and perhaps how this may be the foundation or p- a potential for yeah. common interests among among people who otherwise tend to vote yeah. differently yeah I, I i first got interested so i want to give credit to two people there's more than two but chris leonard is a great investigative business journalist whose book the meat racket really goes deeply into the nature of the chicken industry. And then Lena Khan, now the chair of the FTC, who as a journalist, I actually think it's sort of undervalued that so much of her brilliance, I mean, she's brilliant anyway, but that she started not from theory, but from journalism, like what's actually happening, (laughs) that she did some of the early journalistic pieces on on the chicken industry. And so just give you a broad sense, we see the shift from the 70s where there's this change in law and that change in law leads to massive, what we call horizontal and vertical integration. You don't need to know those terms. You, you know what it means. It's the distributors all eat each other up and become three distributors. And this is like Tyson Pilgrims, you probably buy these all the time. And then those distributors who basically you're a farmer here, eater, family is here. You need to go through the distributors to get to the supermarket, to get to the family. You're not selling, except in this like 4%, you're not selling directly to people. So distributors are essential for farmers. And the distributors then also buy different elements up and down the supply chain. So now you have concentrated regional companies, Tyson, and a chicken farmer. It looks from a distance, you're like, oh, independent business. It looks like a A classic American entrepreneur has to take out a major loan, million dollar loan for the chicken house, has to buy the grain from Tyson, otherwise Tyson's not going to take the chickens, has to use the specifications for how the chicken house is set up, otherwise not going to accept the chickens, has to agree to a really invasive contract that includes sharing lots of information, otherwise Tyson's not going to take the chickens. And just to be clear, if Tyson doesn't take chickens, you default on your loan. And what this leads to, and by the way, is paid a different amount every month 
And Tyson says it's because of how much they're producing, but there's no way to check because part of the contract is you aren't allowed to talk to other chicken farmers. So the effect is these apparently independent businesses are actually in a deeply unstable paranoid. And I, I think of it as a rational paranoia. <laughs> These are rationally paranoid that anything you do could affect how much you're paid this month and you could end up with a million dollar loan and no way to pay it back. When I talk to chicken farmers, they talk a lot about suicide. They talk a lot about anger, about paranoia. And in 2010, when the Obama administration started to investigate this, chicken farmers who spoke up about what was happening tell stories of being retaliated against. Like, if you speak, you will actually go bankrupt. So this is like, this is, as you can see, it's an economic issue and a democracy issue. I mean, what I just described is what happened to Uber drivers. It's like, you have to buy the car, you're on the hook, you, you accept a contract with a mass degree of surveillance. Of course, when Uber and Lyft come in, they come in with what looks like a better deal than what uh, drivers were making with the yellow taxis. But now the percentage they're taking, they're taking sort of a massive percentage. And basically just Tyson here, drivers here, both are in positions where they're surveyed, experimented upon can be cut off without reason. They are called independent, but they're profoundly dependent in an irrational state of paranoia. And I, I, one of the most gratifying moments for me in the book is when I sent uh, one of the chicken farmers, I talked to a copy of the book and he told me he wept and he said, I had no idea that drivers were going through this too. And if I have a, you know, there's, I do have <laughs> a core political goal of mine is to say Tyson and Uber, they want us to see these as a tech problem here and an ag problem here. And like, we'll deal with that in the ag, de ag department and we'll deal with this in sort of solving technology or public transit, as opposed to saying, oh, no, no, we actually have a new business model problem that is actually a democracy model problem that we got to solve across the board. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's so well put. And and I want to stick with this and stick with, well, using the tech point and the, the, the Uber thing to jump off into, I mean, you've, you've articulated the critique of it. You know, a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of sort of ad, the Uber boosters will say, well, this is just going to happen, right? We got this technology. This is just yeah. how it's going to go. And of course, well, we should talk about this. Just yesterday, the yeah. New York Taxi Worker Alliance won an epic yeah. um, struggle for debt relief after a, you know, a two-week hunger strike and, and a long, long, long campaign. And they obviously have a very different analysis of this problem and one that I think you that they share with you in a lot yeah. of ways. So I mean, these, these workers and, and that union is, is, is a big part of your story that you tell in the book. So I mean, do you want to just talk a little bit about them and the industry generally in New York and more broadly and, and why? Why, you know, what it says about the bigger themes you're discussing? Yeah. I mean, the other part of this, the taxi driver story is a little different than the chicken story in this way, in that in the 1920s, early 1930s, New York City had a problem. It had highly congested streets, underpaid drivers who were fighting each other for fares, and riders who couldn't trust the pricing and safety of their rides. Okay. So the first solution is this guy from Checker 
comes in is like, hey, I will, you know, sort of a classic local monopoly solution. Hey, I will become the dispatch for everybody. Trust me and I'll clean everything up. Everybody will be accountable to me. Just give me, like, let me control the dispatch. So public, the city, basically giving the power to a private entity. But then he got caught bribing several public officials. And the scandal led to the Hass Act, which is this taxi law structure that governed New York City for decades. Not perfect, but what's really powerful about reading the Hass Act now is like it, it lays out its purposes in the medallion system. And the purposes are anti-monopoly purposes, anti-corruption purposes, making sure that drivers have you know, dignity and decent pay and making sure riders feel safe. And when Uber and Lyft came along and effectively did a run around those, all of those rules that had been in place for, for years and years, that led to the collapse of the value of the medallions. So this is not in the book, but I actually, it's, it's so timely and I want to say it. In other areas of law, we look at this as something akin to a regulatory taking. You guys know like eminent domain or takings clause. When the rules are changed such that, okay, you built a business as a hair cutter, and now suddenly zoning means that you can no longer have that business. So your business went from being worth a million to $10,000. Well, often government will then pay and say, it's as if we condemned that land, right? So I'm not actually saying that this was a taking, but it's like that. And we have to understand it like that. And I, I, I think one of the I mean, there's so many, I'm just so impressed with the activism of the New York the Union that represents the taxi workers and the lawmakers who really stood up for this. But the default thinking was, oh, technology just did this, like a sort of technology on its own, nothing you can do about it. And, and, and I, it's important to, you know, there are real impacts of tech. One of the biggest is the surveillance capacity. But as a political matter, tech has somehow come in and like made everybody's eyes fuzzy so they can't see the power structures that are actually not 20 years old, but thousands of years old. You know, the feudal, the feudal system is not, a, is not an innovation right, of extraction. And what I, what I can sometimes see is there's a combination. The techno-utopians are like, everything's better now. And the techno-dystopians are like, everything's worse now, instead of saying, Okay, the things that are different are the capacity to track surveillance, spying, and that increases already centralized power exponentially. The things that are the same is centralized systems that are used to extract value from workers and small businesses and, and degrade the quality of the product. So like, let's not let tech sort of say we're, we're solving a tech problem when we're frankly, a lot of the time solving a business model problem. Right. No, and that, yeah, and that actually leads me to, I think, one of my favorite chapter titles of yours, which relates to this, which is, I think, maybe how a lot of techno dystopians, as you put it, react to this, and which I can kind of commiserate with, is, is just throwing your hands up and saying, I'm not going to have any part of it. And you, right. and you have a type chapter titled, No, You Don't Have to Quit Facebook. And you discuss the idea of the boycott in, 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 this, in this chapter. So I guess moving into sort of the strategic you know, movement building part of this conversation. 
what's your, why don't we have to quit Facebook? <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. This is, it's probably a response to, you know, I'd go give a talk about you know, Facebook, Amazon, and almost invariably the first questions were not questions. And I bet I'll have it today. <laughs> I, bet, I bet some of you are thinking this right now, <laughs> which is I will quit it. And I, I have this feeling of both, love and sympathy and deep frustration, <laughs> and I'll explain why, is the, the, there, there are incredibly powerful consumer boycotts in our history around the world. And I look to those as models and they can change policy. However, they are strategic, sustained, have and often have law changing goals, not just company behavior changing goals. And right now in the 1960s, the idea that voting with your feet, even that language of vote with your feet actually comes from Milton Friedman. The idea that you are more powerful as a consumer than you are as a voter, as a member of your political community, as a potential organizer, and so what, what, what I think a lot of progressives sort of, I forget the exact word, but like took on is the idea of prioritizing personal choice first and political choice second. And my, my real argument, the sort of more technical argument in that chapter is not don't boycott. If you, if you happen to have the privilege where you are able to boycott that you don't need it as a small business owner, that you don't need it to keep in touch with your grandmother, that you don't need it to be engaged in political activism. I need it to be engaged in political activism, like to be a member of, if you have that, sure, do it. But before you do that, call your senator. Like the first job is to change. If, if something is wrong, like if there are potholes, you don't avoid the street. You call your, you call your city council members. And, and I, I just really want to shift our mode and right now, and, and Zainab Tufchecki has, uh, is now a columnist at the New York Times, has been a wonderful writer about this, is that we have all these sort of ephemeral mini quote unquote boycotts that create a feeling of action, but actually are dissipating political power. And right now, if you've got limited energy, put that energy into changing the business model of Facebook and breaking it apart from Instagram. And then like, if you've got more leftover, sure. If you if you want to go find, you know, a Verso, a non-ad based social media company, great. But but tell me, I mean, it is a, it's an aggressive title, and it's, I'm very much speaking to my progressive friends. So tell me about uh, Samir, what you how you think about boycotting? No, I, I mean I love the title, and I think it makes I think it makes perfect sense. I I I I, I recently quit Facebook simply for my own well being, right, but but I don't think it's a political act in any way, you know. And and most likely, I if I had to bet, I'd be back on. I'll be back on it within you know a few months. But I mean this. So so I think strategically it makes a lot of sense, and it and it leads to the the sort of the next question, which is maybe the bigger question that I have, and I I know a lot of people are going to have, which is sort of political action towards what? And, and so there's a, there's a famous old book by this historian, Ellis Hawley, called The New Deal and the Problem of Monopoly, where he, where he wrestles with this, this kind of central tension within the New Deal coalition between 
I mean, and this is a crude kind of simplistic summary of it, but between trust busting, breaking up companies and planning, high, regulating and, and public ownership and so on. And this is a debate that's that progressives has had for a long time, right? Should we be breaking up companies or should we be trying to regulate them and use the size for good or pay, perhaps nationalize them depending on what sector they're in and so on? And you... you well, I'm going to pose it to you because you you have a I think a nuanced take on this. And so, what what is if, in spite the title is break them up, which suggests right. something. But I think your your take is actually maybe a bit more even nuanced, more nuanced than the title yeah. suggests. So, what's your what's your thought on this age old progressive debate about what to do about bigness? Yes. So I think it depends, and it is so it is more specific. And break them up. I, I saw Andrew's comment in the chat, and I'll just address it briefly on the way here is that when I say break them up, I mean what you might think of as classic trust busting, which is break up Facebook from Instagram, break up Amazon from Amazon warehouses. You don't need the marketplace and the warehouses to be owned by the same person. Classic, break up Bayer from seeds, (laughs) horizontal and vertical. But I also mean a core way to break up corporate tyranny is ending forced arbitration because that is a system of private courts. A core core way to break up corporate tyranny is changing the way we fund campaigns because sort of a key mechanism of power is is money politics and post-Citizens United, but pre-Citizens United too. Oh, sorry. So that's a segue. Uh, the first, the, my first title for this book was who's going to make the shoes? Because I was sort of getting so frustrated talking to progressives about like, okay, I get the problems. I want to hear a vision of your economy. And I have one. I have a vision of the economy. And the vision of the economy involves unionized workforces in the private sector, involves more co-op structures. And by the way, that's not a personal choice matter. That's a policy choice. We don't have policies that enable meaningful co-ops right now and that kind of coordination and in some industries involves nationalization of the industry. I, I strongly support Medicare for all. I really resist the framing, and I and I know you, even the way you asked it, you showed that you, you're a little resistant, the framing of this as a choice. The question is not, should everything in society be made by the government or should everything in society be privately made? It is... What things in society should we publicly provide, like education, which I believe strongly in, uh, and what things should we privately provide? The one area that I think is not okay is where there there has been a little bit of a more of a consensus, which is oligopolist private government governance in coordination with the state, and that is that's the vision of like two or three big companies that are regulated by the state. I think that's actually the most dangerous of, of these because of the conflict, the sort of core conflict of interest that these companies have profit incentives. And so I think when it comes to, you know, any given industry, we say, okay, so what is the, what are our goals for this industry? What is the way that we can best provide it? And in healthcare, for instance, I, I think we need Medicare for all and we need to be doing some serious anti-monopoly work in the pharma area. <laughs> and we need to be doing some serious anti-monopoly work and something that is even easier to understand, like medical devices. You know, yeah, one of the reasons our prices are so high is that we allowed for radical concentration in prosthetics. 
<laughs> One of the reasons the prices are so high is that we've allowed for massive hospital consolidation. And that's true if they're nonprofit too, by the way. Prices are higher, nurses get paid less when you have hospital consolidation. So this either or is really problematic. And I'll just use one, one example. We have a national, a very nationalized industry, it's the Department of uh, Defense, right? You don't get more nationalized than that. But because we have allowed for contractors to move from 65 to under five in the last 40 years, those five contractors are then dictating federal policy instead of federal policy dictating those contractors. And so every area, unless you believe in, which I don't, unless you believe in the state making everything, there are really important areas for state, you know, for, for public, direct public provision of goods and really important anti-monopoly work. And I, the, 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 the shaking the shoulders part of this is like, you would never say, oh, you have to choose between suing Pfizer and making drugs generically. You'd be like, no, we're going to sue Pfizer now. <laughs> or like, let's choose between, if, if you believe in a more concentrated health insurance, if you believe in, say, Medicare for all, you wouldn't say, oh, but we should have to choose between Medicare for all and suing Blue Cross and Blue Shield. It's like, no, no. When there is a problem of concentrated power, you take on the root of the power and there is nothing more central. It's like, why are we avoiding the power problem? Like, yes, don't, don't just protest Pfizer after we've allowed it to gobble up all these other companies. Protest it now. Don't protest Caremark and CVS after they've gobbled everything up and say, change your policies. We have to talk about the illegitimacy of this kind of, of this form of government. Yeah, well, you know, it's made, made me think while you're talking about that. There, Adolf Burley, who was a famous New Dealer and the co-author of this big book in the 1930s, The Modern Corporation, once said that um, antitrust is just another name for planning, which I think nicely kind of shows, you know, these are, they're, they're not, they're not, they don't need to be seen as antagon oh, antagonistic right. Yes. <laughs> approaches. Right. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're complementary. I have one last one because I have to ask it to you. Your former or a co-author of yours, Lena Khan, who you mentioned yes. is the head of the FTC. Another associate of yours, Tim Wu, is the head of the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. The Biden administration is clearly yeah. put people in high places on questions that you care about that that seem to think similar to you. So what's your take? What's How's the Biden administration doing on, on the question of anti-monopoly and antitrust? Pretty amazing. I feel like we've I don't want to like declare premature victory, but we're pretty close to, to winning the war of ideas. And now we have the hard part, which is, you know, really fighting against the entrenched power that don't want the change to happen. But Biden gave a speech, really profound speech this summer, where he said to me, he said, failed. He said the policies of the last 40 years, and I'm paraphrasing, but I won't, I'm not paraphrasing the word failed. He said failed. <laughs> it wasn't like what we're used to hearing from Democratic or Republican presidents. Frankly, since 76, um, since I was five. <laughs> you know, there's more like tweaking. He said, this isn't working. And what, you know, when we're thinking about Striketober and the number of workers who are going up against corporate monopolies, whether it's John Deere or American Airlines, where we have failed these workers by allowing these mergers. Like when the FTC allowed these mergers, it wasn't just like, yes, airlines are non-responsive to your complaints, which, which, you, which you actually know they are. It was, we were failing the workers because we were actually putting them in conditions where they had no power to negotiate. And his speech was powerful because he used the word failure and because he centered it in workers. 
He centered it in the research that shows that there are thousands of dollars a year that have effectively been stolen from workers by our monopoly choices that concentrated in concentrated industries. You can track five to $15,000 a year that workers would have gotten if the industries weren't as concentrated. Like, re, like this is a, this is, this is on us. And, and we've got a lot of work to do. It's, you know, bringing in Lena, bringing in Tim Wu, really powerful moments. Now, this is why we need the movement, because you need an inside-outside game. And what you're seeing now is like the Teamsters and others really leaning into anti-monopoly work. Like if we're going to protect delivery drivers, we can't just let Amazon run rampant. So when I started talking about this, it was like, you know, even in 2014, I frankly got interested in this before that, but started really talking about it publicly in 2014. It just sort of sounded like this niche technical issue. And I got I give Biden a lot of credit for making it front and center, but we got a lot of work to do. Well, Professor Zephyr Teachout, thank you so much for being here. This is a great, great discussion. Thanks everyone for these wonderful thanks, questions. Thanks and for so being much, here. Samir, for your great questions. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.